Hey everyone, this is the uh, Nips and Sips podcast uh, with your usual suspects, me. I'm Dr. Jeremy Boyd and my partner in crime over there. And today we got a very, very special guest, uh, Dr. Zachary Walston, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, Nailed it. All right, good, good, good. I'm on my game today. Uh, so uh, Brandon overheard, uh, uh, Zach, you also have a podcast uh, and had some, uh, I guess, talked over Facebook and uh, shared uh, similar minds, but uh, maybe some different perspectives as well. So we had to get you on the show. So thanks for coming on board there, Zach. How's Happy it going? To be on. Doing well. It's uh, always love having these kind of conversations. <clears throat> this will be my first actual podcast interview now with, with three of us on here. So be good. Guys have to yeah. take it easy on me. Game questions from both ways. Awesome. No, we'll uh, we'll try and uh, it won't be like last night's debate. So okay, oh. <laughs> or two nights ago, I guess. <clears throat> but That's right. uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess Jay, you want to start with some drinks and then uh, we'll yeah. get rolling. Sure. I mean, Zach, I, I guess you. Uh, I mean, you can, we talked a little bit about our show. You know, it's nips yep. and sips. Uh, so we'll just you know, go around the table talk about our drinks. Um, I guess I'll just get started. Got a cool can today. I was in the Finger Lakes for my anniversary this weekend, and I went to probably top two breweries of my lifetime of 92 or three breweries. Um, and it's a Nitro Breakfast with Churchill. Pretty cool. Awesome war themed. They had like a Jeep, a tank, an airplane in there. Really awesome place. Uh, really like this stout. I give it an 8.8 on the Jeremy Boyd scale. I already had it. Sorry, no cup today, but I want to keep it quick. All right, I like it. Zach, what do you got, my man? Uh, so I here have, it's an I.W. Harper 15-year, oh. so bourbon. Uh, this is actually, I got it when I went to, uh, my wife and I, she's really big into horse racing, and she grew up riding horses, and we decided to do an impromptu trip literally the day before the Breeders' Cup when American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown. And so awesome. it was the first time in a long time I'd been in Kentucky. So I said, hey, we're going to go into bourbon country, and naturally, on my way in, I needed to stop by the Bourbon Barn House. It's one of like these two massive uh, you know, bourbon stores up in that area. And this was one of the two along with Blade and Bow that I got. And this is actually going to be my second to last dram because it's nearing the end. And it is, it is one that goes in the bottom of the cabinet that I'm not tempted to drink very often. Yeah, so I've had it for wow, a few years. Those. All yeah. right. So uh, quite honored that you, you broke out the good stuff for us. A great story yeah. with that. I actually took uh, an intern of mine. She just uh, graduated and everything uh, and got me a bottle of uh, Blade and Bow. So uh, it's actually a pretty, pretty solid uh, drink right there. Um, it is. Jeremy, congrats to you on your, your two-year anniversary. Can't believe it's thank been you. two years already. Congrats. Um, and yeah, I have uh, Johnny Walker 18, uh, which was actually a gift from you, Jeremy, a couple birthdays yeah. ago. So that's what I am drinking. Um, with that, let's, uh, let's kind of jump into it. Um, Zach, just if you can tell the audience a little bit about your background, uh, where you live, where you work, um, you know, some of the things that you're into. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I said, uh, my name is Zach Walston. I'm a physical therapist and the national director of quality and research with PT Solutions. Uh, so we're a practice that's in in 17 states right now, but predominantly the Southeast. So I live in the suburbs of Atlanta uh, in Marietta. And that's where I started my practice or started working with them at the beginning. I did the orthopedic residency, kind of worked my way up through residency, doing mentorship, faculty, uh, now as the coordinator of the program. And then I've, my main role is also really heavily involved in research. 
Uh, so I'm not PhD trained. I have learned a lot by failure and reviewers telling me all the things I did wrong and then a bunch of mentors. But my research is mainly focused on observational studies using all the data that we have, uh, survey studies, and then a lot of case study case series to get some of those, uh, you know, sure there's limitations, but there's a lot of value in those anecdotal experiences uh, to get some of those things published. And it's been a fun ride. It's kind of been developing the role as I go. Yeah. So how many years would you say you've been in practice now, roughly? So I've been practicing a little over six years now. Very nice. So you've ascended pretty quickly up, uh, I guess, the ranks within your company and just within the profession as well, you know, having um, board certification, going through residency and now being the, uh, I guess, coordinator of it as well. Yeah, a lot of it's been opportunities that have been provided to me and then being willing to scrape my knees over and over and over and over again. And it's been a fun ride as well. So uh, yeah, a lot of opportunity, lots still to go though, a lot more to do to accomplish. Yeah. I saw that you're also the director of clinical mentorship as well in the in your is it PT solutions. Yeah, so we also have a six month mentorship program. Our residency is oh. in seven states, but for those that we don't have it, or residency is not for everybody, uh, we do a mentorship program. And so I designed that about three years ago now uh, and help nice. with a lot of lead mentors throughout our practice to help run that. That's awesome. Is uh, all your all your PTs within PT solutions either go one route or the other, or some don't. That's the goal now. It hasn't always been nice. that, but we really, really strongly encourage. It's not mandatory, but highly encouraged to go through that, uh, at least that mentorship program. And then we have quite a few who do both, uh, depending on when they start work and when the residency program starts. So what's the, um, I guess the delineation or the difference between the, the mentorship or in-house mentorship versus the, um, is this an in-house residency, correct? It is. It's an in-house residency. So we have a distance model, but it, like this, like we're on Zoom, we use something called Life Size, where every Tuesday morning, the, the local sites, they all call in together. So hmm. it, it has the distance model. But we don't do the recordings. We don't do the online piece. It is meant to be uh, in-person. We have in-person lab, mentorship, all of that. Yeah. The, the mentoring program is really focused on clinical. It's really heavily focused on, okay, here's the evidence, updated evidence. How can we help you transition from what you had to know in school, bearing in mind that school does what they need to do, but school is largely intended for you to pass boards. Like that's their mm -hmm. job, pass boards. Mm -hmm. Now in mentorship, we're going to help you translate that to clinical practice and kind of update things a little. Residency in our program has a lot of leadership development focus. We get into the business side of PT. Uh, we do uh, leadership development with regards to different books that you read. You get involved into research. You do physician shadowing. There's, it's a lot more comprehensive and expansive, uh, and it's a lot more rigorous. It was a brutal year, my year of residency. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. You you incorporate the business side of things, which. Uh, I guess, to be honest, it is kind of the, the ugly aspect of what we do. And then also fostering leadership skills and growth, uh, which go beyond clinical skills. Um, so, yeah, you know, you, you say the ugly part and, and, and that's true that, you know, a lot of individuals don't like talking about it. The, the fact of the matter is, though, if we don't, then we're dealing with CMS cuts. Right? Mm -hmm. we, we don't do a good job of showing our value. We get scared about talking about the money. But right. then when it comes to the sunk or the amount of debt that we have and we want to get paid more for what we do, 
then we have to bill appropriately and talk about what we're worth and all of that. So uh, yeah, a lot of residents aren't comfortable with it. And we're trying to break that barrier down that you have to talk about what you're worth. Yeah. Uh, can you just do a, a quick example of maybe a, a topic um, or maybe talk about billing and how to get mm -hmm. people on the, the same way of billing um, or mind frame when it comes to billing and what you're worth. And I guess the, the gray areas that, um, you know, time codes present versus mm -hmm. do you have to spend certain amount of time for, for each unit that you're billing out, things like that. Yeah. That's what's so frustrating about what we deal with right now, having a paper for service model that you are incentivized for giving more care. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we really talk about is, you know, you bill for your treat and you treat what you bill. And so it needs to be the, at the foundation, what's the best thing for the patient at long-term as well. And the patient's decision, right? It's not, we're coaches, we're there to guide them. And when it's there, as long as they're in that joint decision-making, then make sure you bill for what you treat. And so if I'm with an individual and I'm genuinely giving them 53, 54 minutes of care, and it's the high quality care that I need to bill for that. Uh, that, that the, it's interesting when you look actually in some of the research about this, uh, when it comes to our value uh, and what people perceive as value too, is that if we don't bill for what we do, if we don't showcase how much we're actually worth, then one, people don't think it's as valuable of a treatment. Right? So there is a, a studies that research that shows when something's given pro bono, it could be very valuable. It's something that you see, uh, uh, it's something we'll work really hard for. Someone that gets the services might really care about it. When something is billed or if you offer to pay what it's truly worth, again, high value. When you give a small amount, when you give a, a discount, then that, that hurts the inherent value of something. If I were to ask a friend to help me move and I offer to pay them a full amount for it, 20, 30 bucks an hour, or ask them to help me out for free, that's going to feel like something, okay, I'm getting paid for what I'm worth, or I'm someone who is doing a service to, to help a friend. If you say, hey, I'll give you a few bucks to do this, and that almost comes across as insulting, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have that piece of it that if you go to a, a patient or you go to another therapist and you try to kind of devalue what you're giving, there's the psychological piece. And then there's just the piece around, look, if we don't get what we are billed for, what we are worth, CMS is just going to take it away saying, Hey, you're not worth that. And that goes to the value of care you provide too. stop putting hot packs on people. Stop doing the modalities that are low value care. If you're, they can put a bag of peas on when they get home. Yeah, um, so yeah. I think there's so many ways to get into that. Uh, but it is something that we have to be willing to talk about. Or over treating people. Uh, a lot of it is, you know, definitely it takes forever to, you know, treat things like maybe even acute low back pain or, and we're seeing them for 30, 40, 50 visits. And it's tough to see the worth in it. If it's, it just looks as good as them just staying at home doing nothing. So one, we need to give higher value care. We do. I think one of my least, one of the statements that riles me up more than anything is that bad PT is better than no PT. I can't stand hearing that mm -hmm. uh, because on so many levels, one from an ethical standpoint, two, it's not better because on the long term, you're not helping that individual. You're hurting our professional value and the value proposition long term. Mm -hmm. uh, so no, bad PT is never better than no PT. And also the feeling of, well, getting PT can only be helpful, right? So it's not like I'm giving them anything negative. You're creating dependency on somebody if they're being overtreated. Uh, if you're, we don't recognize that a lot of times 
people would get better if we don't do anything. Like we fall victim mm -hmm. to this outcome bias that, well, I did this, I got this result, therefore it was what I did. Mm -hmm. It might've been that they got a good night's sleep or they finally just healed. Mm -hmm. uh, so I agree, the overutilization of care has got to go away and it is hurting us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great points, man. Um, I guess with that, uh, before we, we kind of dive in a, a little deeper that, um, how did you get into the teaching aspect uh, within you know, your clinic and, and where you are today? Yeah, um, part of it was, I guess if you couldn't tell, some of this stuff gets me a, a, a little fired up and, oh, and that's part of it. Oh, um, yep. You know, I, I learned a lot of what I did wrong by doing a lot of dumb things in the clinic. Um, I've done a lot of things. I look back and go, okay, yeah, that was poor care. I, I've overutilized services and there are times where I, I've been like, no, that, that's that, that good new grad mindset or, or the mill mindset. And no, I need to get patients better. And where are those gaps? What are those things that we're limited in? And I think what actually influenced me, you know, one of the books that influenced me most is when I was thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman, when I yep. started looking into behavioral psychology and recognizing that this is, these areas about how we critically reflect, it's not talked about a lot. That a lot of times education is just focused on how do I accrue as much information as possible? And I want to see, and I'm interested in this, I like sharing this information, so I started talking about it a lot more. So Dale, our CEO and program director, he would occasionally ask me to come help out at residency, give a couple lectures here and there, and I loved it. And it was something that I just kept asking for more and instead of waiting to be invited back. I, I'd find opportunities to teach courses, whether it be as a secondary teacher, help out with lab. I started applying to conferences and just sought any opportunity I could. And I've started to get a little bit better at it. And because of that, more opportunities have arisen. I'll be presenting at a National Student Conclave and CSM next year, finally breaking through on those. But a lot of it was just uh, the rejection and, and keep practicing and getting better at it. Yeah. Yeah. All, all great points. Uh, I really like, um, well, a couple of things you said, the, uh, thinking fast and slow, uh, great read, um, or audio book. If, if you listen to that, um, forces you to, you know, realize that we have different, uh, thinking patterns and thinking ways. Um, and then with that, and Jeremy and I preach about this all the time, reflection and, you know, mm -hmm. it's reflection in action and, and reflection on action. Um, and I think you hit the nail on the head where education or learning is too much on accruing knowledge. And I'll even take it a step further, um, just regurgitating it to pass the test. Mm -hmm. But uh, as you alluded to earlier, there is that severe gap between learning it and then how do we bridge that gap and then cro cross the bridge really uh, and apply it clinically. Uh, and then taking the time out to reflect on what you did correctly and what you did wrong because um, – Really, the, the big thing of, you know, I think what all three of us are is we've failed a lot, but we've mm -hmm. taken a step back um, to see where it is we went wrong so we could try and improve it the next time. And it's doing that over and over and over again instead of just kind of skating by and it's easy for clinicians to be like, oh, it's the patient's fault or they're not complying or they're mm -hmm. this or they're that instead of just looking, taking a step back and looking at yourself for a little bit. I completely agree. We've got to have the foundation on how to read research, how to critically reflect, how, understanding bias and heuristics, uh, understanding metacognition, thinking about thinking, because otherwise we're just layering a bunch of information on an unstable foundation, right? Just having a bunch, like you said, you just regurgitate it because you can't think through how to apply it. Mm. Um, and so like, I, I love the philosophy of Jordan Ellenberg. He wrote the book, ironically titled, 
how not to be wrong, the power mm. of mathematical thinking. And he talks now that by day he tries to prove himself right. And by night he tries to prove himself wrong. And mm. so we'll do this in residency. I'll have all the residents once a year, like when we're doing manipulation, for example, and we'll do it with exercise, we'll do it with dry needling, we'll do it with everything. Say, so I want you to go look up all the evidence that says you should never manipulate someone. We should never dry needle. And one of two things will happen. Either you'll come back and say, yeah, shoot, I'm never going to do that in the clinic again. Or you may come back and go, I have more evidence to support my clinical decision-making and have a better understanding and not falling to that confirmation bias. Uh, and then just following it up with people that there's no such thing as an undroppable tool. There's nothing that you can learn now that can't be uh, not best practice later down the line. And that's uncomfortable, uh, but that's a big area that we need to focus on that we don't, even if we have letters behind our name, let that, you know, we adhere to some tool forever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, very well put. Jeremy, anything else? Because um, Zach, you, you mentioned some good, uh, good things and I, I kind of want to use that as a segue, but Jared, do you have anything else real quick you want to ask? No, I, I agree with uh, the reflection piece and yeah, I want to make sure we have a lot of head nodding going with, with what Zach's saying. So I want, don't want to take some away from his spotlight. Uh, oh, I was like, I thought I hit something in no, that. that that's <laughs> I was like, oh shit, because I just so, whacked my table here. But um, yeah, go ahead. I don't want to say the real reason, but the big thing that I guess we asked you on the show for it is your, your passion and your knowledge for evidence-based practice. And I had saw this post that you wrote um, about a month and a half ago, uh, which I agreed with a hundred percent, a thousand percent. You articulated very well. Uh, and then obviously some people responded and I, you know, you responded, I responded and things like that. But if you can just kind of dive in a little deeper to this, to how people, clinicians should be um, interpreting research. You know, is it 100% our staple? Do we need to use it more as a guide? You know, just, you know, this is hopefully in the next 10 minutes, you kind of just rant on this stuff. Yeah, sure. So yeah, evidence-based practice is something that's, I think, very misunderstood on what it is. And what we find in any of these debates out there is uh, false dichotomies are used all the time that it's either this or that, that, you know, uh, and so I'll give you an example, we go into evidence-based practice, uh, maybe a false dry economy. Individuals really adhere to one of those different pillars to support whatever their current belief or viewpoint is at that moment. And so, you know, the three pillars being research, what's in the evidence. And then mind you, that has qualifications as well, right? That just because something's in research doesn't mean it's good. There's a lot of real garbage research out there, especially with predatory journals out there, just mm -hmm. being willing to publish anything. Yep. Then you have expertise. Again, gradations there. Some expertise can be great. You develop intuitions. You become more effective sometimes with heuristics. However, Expertise can also cause overconfidence bias. Expertise can cause you to feel like that you don't need to update clinical practice. You've already figured it all out. And then you have patient values and expectations. And again, there's gradations of that, that uh, the values and expectations may be anchored, that someone was told by their physician before they came in, hey, you're going to get one, one visit in a home exercise program, and then you're done. And that's really hard to move away from that anchor. But if we recommend more, you know, how do we make sure that we do enough that we can still get them to come back because if they never come back because we're too aggressive with how we communicate and we ignore their values, we're not helping anyone, All right? So evidence-based practice is this combination of all three 
It's you have to take all of them into account there. We hate it as students, but it depends is the mantra of healthcare, right? It, it is context matters for everything. Uh, and so, you know, the, what this uh, article discusses, and I, I didn't write this specific one. I've written about evidence-based practice. This is an article I shared. I have to uh, look at who the author was. But it does a great job of taking the common reasons why people refute the value of evidence-based practice and gets after them. And one of the biggest ones is that people think evidence-based practice means you just look at what research says and that's it. And that's not it. You know, research has limitations. Randomized control trials are great. They're the gold standard, but they aren't real life. There are so many factors you can't uh, control for in real life that can't be accounted for in a randomized control trial. But anecdotal evidence doesn't have a control. And I can never say no matter what I do in life that I 100% cause and effect because there's no control to be able to know uh, comparatively to if I had done a different action. Um, and then we know that patients' values and expectations completely modulate care, placebo, nocebo, all of that. Um, so that's an overview kind of what evidence-based practice is. And I, I don't really view it as an option of, yes, evidence-based practice is good or bad. That is the standard, but there's no one perfect recipe of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all, all great points what what are your your takes on especially new grads and, and dpt students and i think it's the way it's taught that evidence-based practice is only that one pillar only mm -hmm. the research and not even all of the research just that top part because we're learning that uh systematic reviews and meta-analysis and randomized control trials are the uh as you said the gold standard which um over the past two years, I've actually really begun to disagree because, as you said, you can't take a homogenous or a group that you were trying to generalize um, to the population, um, you know, make it homogenous and then have an N of one when you're treating clinically. Yeah, I mean, you're never going to have uh, a randomized control trial. I think, I think where the big mistake happens is that we look at what the protocol is. Mm -hmm. And we directly translate that to a group of patients, mm -hmm. right? That gives us an info. What a randomized control trial can tell us is if there's a cause and effect relationship, right? It can help us know that, hey, this is something that may have a beneficial effect. We have the issues of, and I talked about this one of my recent uh, posts and episodes about the issues with using averages, that an average outcome does not mean that that fits everybody, Right? And so that's a big issue with the mean that just because the mean of this group of people got better 20 points on the Oswestry Disability Index does not mean everybody is, right? We have to realize that the way that things are applied in research is never how they're applied in clinical practice. So I think if you want to determine if something's a cause and effect relationship, and yes, randomized control trial is going to be that peak. Then the systematic review lets us know, okay, is that reproducible? Uh, is, was there a lot of bias maybe in that randomized control trial? Was that control trial really something we could put in clinical practice? Because it's hard to take one trial and say, okay, this is how I'm going to start treating now. Really, and this is one of my professors uh, in PT school, uh, Sarah Bland, taught me that the best research type is the one that fits the research question. There are some studies that observational cohort prospective analysis is best. There are some times when a case study is best. Because a case study lets me look into clinical decision-making. A case study lets you to do more reflective practice. It doesn't mean that that case study is how I'm going to apply it to every one of my patients. 
but you have to use it what the value is. I think like what you're getting at that what can happen to a lot of new grads is they're just going to look at the evidence. And then the other thing is, do you know how to read the evidence? There's systematic reviews. If a systematic review is full of crappy randomized control trials, then there's no value. It could be a well-constructed systematic review, but if it's just garbage that it's reviewing, I can't do anything with that. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a problem, but I understand some of it because when you come out as a new grad, you don't have experience to draw on. Yeah. You are actually probably not very skilled also at how to understand patient values and expectations. You know, the Dunning-Kruger effect hits us that we're on Mount Stupid that we think we've got it figured out. And then once all your patients start not getting better and self-discharging, you fall into the valley of despair and you question everything you've ever done. Um, so I, it, it's hard and that's why I go back to, you've got to learn how to read research, how to critically think, put good mentors around you, get in a culture that's going to help you. Um, but you can't just lean on and say, I'm going to do exactly what the protocols of RCTs tell me to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would like to, I mean, you made some really good points and uh, I think I have a good example of um, just me and evidence-based practice and something controversial is, you know, SIJ, does it move, does it not move? Can we treat, can we not treat it? Ups, ups, downs, ups, all this sort of stuff. And uh, I came into the pro the profession. That's what we were taught. Mm -hmm. And my, we used photo. That's what I we know if you're familiar with. Yeah. Yep. So that's pretty shitty uh, all around. Maybe besides the knee. Um, I think the knee and ankle were probably my only two things where I was, I wasn't <laughs> feeling bad for treating people. Everyone mm -hmm. else, I'm like, I'm so sorry that you got me today. But uh, I want to um, apologize to everyone I did a rotation with. <laughs> exactly. I'm so sorry. Um, like uh, I was, uh, I start off my career with pretty good uh, clinicians. I'm like, I'm just sorry that their schedule is full of mine <laughs> wide open, but um, you know, started, you know, you know, residency exposed some things about the SIJ and I started to treat more of the lumbar, the, just a lumbar spine, better educating all these sort of things. And my outcomes got better. And I kind of threw SIJ out of the bus. So I was like, you know what? I haven't treated it. My outcomes have gotten better. Um, and so I just kept that the way I was like, all right, as long as it doesn't, you know, meet Lazlitz kind of, uh, tests and those sort of things, I'm not even thinking SIJ. And, um, now recently kind of talking to Brandon, who's my mentor exposed to some of this in my fellowship. Uh, I had the, you know, a, a patient actually worker here, um, who, you know, because of that, cause my bias towards the research and my outcomes and those sort of things. I, uh, I didn't even, I get for a year, a year and a half. I was just like, I'm not even bothered with SIJ, those sort of things. Um, he doesn't quite meet the criteria and he, you know, ended up at pelvic floor therapist, a bunch of other things. I was trying to treat some other stuff. And then I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go back and maybe try and treat some of these SIJ stuff. And, Finally, for the first time in a year and a half, he's, uh, you know, he's gotten relief, uh, mm -hmm. which is a long road for the guy. And I did things of paint science, loading the guy, uh, you know, working, trying to, you know, just do education and everything like that. And um, then just didn't get anywhere. I did, you know, nerve glides. I did a lot of things. And because I was so biased towards the research, um, I probably, I, I made it to him. 
I contributed him being in a longer state of pain because I just didn't look at him uh, well enough. So just something that came to mind as you were talking there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think it also points to how long it takes until we start to adapt or change, right? So like we're treating somebody go, no, 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 this is what it says. So I'm going to keep doing exactly what this one study or this group of studies told me to do until it works instead of saying, well, let me look at the individual patient. And sometimes we do have to go to some of those uh, more nuanced areas, right? And it might just be uh, the response of patient gains something new. They might feel more heard if you have a more localized approach, whatever it may be. Uh, I think that's a, a good point to the fact that, yes, you know, abide by research, but, but take everything into account and recognize that you can't just keep saying, well, this should work. So I'm going to keep doing it anyways until hopefully someday I break through. Yeah. Yeah. All, all great points, guys. I think we've obviously all been there. Um, Zach, you, you touched upon a point earlier, uh, which I 100% agree with, with, um, you know, those case studies um, or uh, a case series might be the best. I mean, people need to begin to look at those more uh, because you get that insight to how somebody else is thinking what their difference diagnosis was, how their treatment pattern was, like all that stuff I think is valuable, especially for a clinician early on um, to mm -hmm. develop that reflection uh, and develop practice patterns and to gain that experience via someone else. Um, so now you can address that second pillar while not really having it because you're tapping in somebody else's um, experience via reading. Uh, I guess with that, do you have any go-to articles or research um, to help try and put people on the right path um, in terms of, you know, developing clinical decision-making and reasoning? Um, I've talked about in the past, a Philip Sizer article um, from 2016, I believe it was, where he talks about how research um, was never intended to replace all the other pillars that we, we just mentioned, but do you have any other things, maybe two or three Hallmark articles that maybe stood out for you, or maybe you have your your um, your staff read. Yeah, there's. Um, let me see what the article is. Part of one of the big ones for me is going to be first aware, being aware of mm -hmm. some of uh, bias or heuristics that affects us. Uh, so there's an article by Dorini that was in the European Journal of Internal Medicine in 2011, and I can send it to you guys if you want to link in show notes or anything like that. Um, but it, it talks about a lot of these biases and heuristics that we do, you know, heuristic being a, a rule of thumb decision-making strategy that can be beneficial. And then the bias being the, uh, basically what gets in the way uh, that can then inhibit our uh, sound decision-making. I think that's one of the foundational ones that I, uh, that I have all our residents read that I think is, is vital. I think from um, the general, like what you were just talking about there, a lot of it's clinical conversation around mm -hmm. the research piece and what evidence-based practice is. Uh, because, you know, like you said, case studies have the value to go through that decision-making process to be able to, to see that. I think what's important is, again, though, you don't flip to the other side, which some people listening to this might then go to the other way because, again, it's, it's formulating an argument that supports your belief. And so it's very easy for someone then to look at a case study and say, aha, see, this case supports my viewpoint of treatment. A case study is not going to prove a causative, causative factor though, right? And so if I have a whole bunch of randomized control trials that say a treatment does not work in terms of creating a causative effect, then it doesn't work. Now, whether something is placebo or whether it's 
driven by patient expectations. Okay, and, and bear in mind that the effect that a placebo drives is still very real. That doesn't mean it's not something that's that patient's pain aren't improving, things of that nature. Uh, but I think that's where you use the research for what's appropriate for the question you're asking. If you want to determine cause and effect, you got to go to control trials. If you want to look at intuitive decision-making, you look at the case studies. If you want to look at big data and trends, you go to the cohort studies. And so you've got to look at the studies that answer the question, uh, but you got to look at the big picture and allow our biases to go. And it, that's harder said than done. Yeah. Easier said than done. No, I think, I think you really summed that up that the past two minutes there, if uh, the audience wants to press uh, rewind there uh, on breaking down how to um, answer or use the research to answer your questions and kind of breaking it up where you're using cause and effect of that randomized control trial and big data or big data with those cohorts. And then obviously that clinical decision-making with the case studies. Well said, couldn't have said it better. Yeah, uh, and, guys, and it takes practice though too, right? And that's the other piece of this. But at the end, you have to look at the research. You cannot just look at an abstract and walk away. Uh, yeah. You definitely can't just look at a title and walk away. That leads to faulty understanding of the research and poor decision-making. And even clinical practice guidelines can't. Um, I do not recommend anymore for people to adhere fully to the 2012 lumbar clinical practice guidelines because they're eight years old. The CPRs that are recommended in there have failed validation multiple times. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that that's a good use of evaluating if someone's appropriate for manipulation or not. Uh, if you look at the American College of Physicians, they have a standard that if it's older than five years, the CPG is invalid. And so I do think that we need to be cognizant of what we use as our standards of care and how updated the evidence is. Yeah. Yeah, and five years is a tight window because it takes a couple of years to get the research out. So now yeah. you're operating with like two years. So uh, usually two to four years to develop the CPG. So I'm not saying that we need to get to that. And I'm not saying that the Delito CPG is useless by any stretch, mm -hmm. but we can't look at that and say, okay, this is the full standard and ignore the subsequent eight years of research that's happened since that was published. Correct. Agreed. It's got to be the, the jump off or starting point, not the end point. Right. Mm -hmm. Something to kind of piggyback off that for our viewers. Uh, I think JSBT released an editorial um, evidence in practice, a new series for clinicians in 2018. Uh, it's like, yeah, so it's about what 12 or 15 sort of breakdowns of, you know, linking evidence to practice, uh, control groups, biases, uh, generalizability, those sort of things. So it's by uh, Stephen Camper, I believe. Um, something we can put into the episode, but if you're kind of, if this is all kind of confusing to you, uh, this, that, that series can definitely help you guys out. Yeah. And, and we're, we're wrapping up here on time is about three minutes left. Zach, if you could just answer some quick questions or really just give some advice for the audience. I'm going to kind of give you a rapid fire here. Um, kind of what, what do you see or what trends do you see our, our future profession kind of going into, What's some piece of advice you should uh, that you would pass on to uh, students, new grads, or even uh, seasoned clinicians that are uh, looking to change and, and begin that evolution process away from maybe some of the stuff that they've been doing? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing or, or two of the biggest things are to be expand what you read and learn. Go outside your field. Uh, you know, move away from just reading JSPT and PTJ. Uh, the best that I've 
gain in clinical skills is when I'm reading in behavioral psychology, reading the work on vulnerability from Benet Brown, reading the, the Stoics and, and how they do emotional regulation, reading uh, Ellenberg, Feynman, you know, all these guys, um, I think fast and slow. And then I would say the other thing is the nothing is undroppable. Uh, we do fall victim to sunk cost fallacy often, and that's not just money. That's also time and effort. So when we get letters behind our name, when we complete residency, when we do fellowships, any of these things, it can cause us to adhere to tools and strategies that we don't need to adhere to anymore. So really anything that you're doing in the clinic, question it. Don't feel like any tools on Drupal, nothing is, and keep trying to strive for uh, improved clinical practice. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. All right. Zach, that brings us to uh, what, like 30 seconds left. Jay, Let's wrap us up, please. All right. Well, thank you for guys for listening. Thanks, Zach, for hopping on board. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or just want to reach out to us, we're at Manips and Sips. Uh, and Zach, you want to you know link into your your all your stuff by all yeah. means. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those. Uh, I'm the host of the Clinical Gap Podcast, where I talk about a lot of this stuff as well. And then I write a blog on my website, ZacharyWalson.com and ptsolutions.com slash live clinically. Awesome. Great. Thanks a lot. Thanks again, Zach. Appreciate the time. Uh, We'll do this again soon for uh, your podcast. Absolutely. Until next time, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.